The scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus then left that place and went into a region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. And as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they no longer are two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the, children, let the little children come to me, but do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, a really interesting passage. I want to give some context about what's going on in this text so we can dig in a little bit. So, just some things to consider here. In this text, we learn a little bit about marriage. We learn a little bit about divorce. We need to learn a lot of bit about self-righteousness. Um, we learn something of what people use to judge others and put them in a certain category that takes them out of relationship with God. And we learn something about what Jesus says that's really significant if we want to enter the kingdom of God, that we need to approach him with a childlike faith. And Mark puts this picture of what it means to approach God with a very childlike faith right up next to this incredibly technical conversation that we're stepping into between Jesus and the Pharisees and then Jesus with his disciples. You see, the, the Pharisees, just in case you're wondering about this, the Pharisees here are not asking a question that has this kind of heart to it. Are you ready? The Pharisees are not saying, Jesus, tell us what it takes to have a marriage that thrives. You know, Jesus, we, marriage is tough. Help us understand what God, your intention is for marriage. That is not their question. Don't get confused by this. This is a very technical question. They're asking Jesus to catch him, and they're trying to undermine him. If you want to really know the heart of what the Pharisees are doing, they are seeking to undermine Jesus. They're not really interested in asking the question about what does it really mean to have a thriving marriage, and what do we do when we find ourselves in our family or in other people's lives that we know who are dealing with divorce, like, Jesus, how do we love them well? This is not their question. So if you try to answer those questions from what's being said here, you're actually, your question's out of context. It doesn't mean it doesn't inform it in some ways. But understand where the Pharisees are really coming from here. Now, in this room, there's enough of us in here, people online. Um, there's lots of us whose lives have probably been impacted by the realities of divorce. You know, maybe you have people very close to you who have experienced it. Maybe you've experienced it or you're in a family um, where there's been, you know, really difficult divorces. Uh, the consistent theme with divorce is that no one intends to get one when you get married. 
and that it can feel a lot like death when it happens. There's a future after divorce, of course. Um, you know, sometimes people take this out of context and say that what Jesus is saying here is that you're married once and then that's it. That's not what's happening. Um, clearly, even Moses gives some, a, a, he permits in certain situations where he can get a divorce. Paul addresses this later. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus wants you to leave this conversation with hope. So if you have been impacted by divorce and you hear my words tonight, and you leave this place, and you're really discouraged about God's love for you, I failed you somehow, and I really want you to come talk to me, or come talk to Kyle, because what Jesus has to say here, what he really wants you to take away from this, is that you can enter his kingdom with a childlike faith. That's actually where Mark is leading this conversation. Now, in this text, as the Pharisees are trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus, they're trying to get him to sort of agree with them. And they understand, you know, that the kind of their game is to figure out certain questions that determine who's the, like, super people in the religious community. Who really has it together? Who, can, who has answers to all the most difficult hypothetical religious questions? And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't exactly give them exactly what they want. What Jesus is doing, and it's why Mark includes, right after this very technical, difficult, very adult conversation... The realities of how God wants us to approach him with a childlike faith that you can't enter, enter the kingdom of God without a childlike faith. The reason this is together is because they are very much connected. The real heart of what's going on in this story is to invite us into a relationship with Jesus and the significance of how God relates to us in covenant and how that covenant in some ways is embodied in marriage. And that we can learn a lot about how to love one another in our marriages by how God has loved us. And so, okay, there's some context for this. Um, the three ideas we're going to discuss, this sermon's a lot about marriage, but it's, it's, it's really about relationship, is first, the permanence of marriage, the problem of marriage, and the power of marriage. The permanence, problem, and power of marriage. And so let's dig in. On the permanence of marriage, this first point. The Pharisees are posing this question about divorce to see if Jesus would agree with them about their ideals, about certain loopholes you could have in marriage. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, divorce in this ancient Near Eastern context was prevalent. Um, in fact, it was so prevalent that men could divorce their wives for any reason. Uh, they didn't cook well. Um, they, they didn't look well. Uh, they were no longer compatible. That's a real common one we use in our culture. They weren't compatible anymore. They could lawfully, before God, divorce their wives. But a woman could not divorce her husband for almost anything at all. Add to that that if a woman was divorced by her husband, if he was left and she had children, they were in a precarious situation, socially, financially, um, physically protected, it was, you know, the, the power was very much out of whack. And so they asked this question, so is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answers their question with a question. Verse 3, what did Moses command you, he replies. They say in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. So the, what the text is that Jesus is quoting and what the Pharisees are referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 24. And you can go back and read that if you'd like. But chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And, and what Jesus is doing with them is he's revealing the heart of the Pharisees, which is this, that really they are hypocrites in this way. They are only interested in following the laws of God that they can make sense of, and they are totally fine ignoring other laws of God. 
You see that? They're asking a question. Jesus immediately moves them away from this hypothetical concept to directly go into the Scriptures and says, What did Moses say? Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Then what does Jesus say? It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Because your hearts were hard, this law was given to you. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to endorse their concept of how a man could leave a woman. And the reason they wanted him to do this, because no matter how he answers, he's either going to offend people who disagree that he, people, you, know, you shouldn't be able to divorce for certain reasons, or, and this was the bigger play, that Jesus would put himself in a place where he's disagreeing with people who have great power and that it would put him in danger. And that's really their goal. Now, in the Scriptures, why does Moses permit divorce? What is that all about? It is not because divorce is part of God's original plan for how we relate to each other. It's because we live in a broken and selfish world. Again, it was because of your hearts. It's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So do you see what Jesus has done? He's taken them from the law they're referring to to back even before that law was written so they can recalibrate their understanding about how to think about marriage from the very beginning. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. They're trying to take this and use it for their own purposes. Jesus is saying, I need you to recalibrate to what I've created you for. Mary Healy writes in a commentary where she's addressing this um, question about Moses and divorce. She says this, The provision afforded some legal protection to a woman whose husband repudiated her. In a society where it was unthinkable for a woman to live on her own, the purpose was not to authorize divorce, but to limit its consequences for women. And so Jesus is, he is pushing them away from using the law for their own purposes to accomplish their own desires and for their own power and saying, Let's ask a bigger question. What is God the Father's intent for marriage anyway? In the beginning, God created them, male and female. A man is to leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they become one flesh. And essentially, Jesus is saying that when a man and a woman are married, there is a new dynamic that comes into existence. They become one. So much so that only death should separate them. So... Does God give grounds to get divorced? Well, you know, in Matthew, in this, in this similar text where Jesus is addressing marriage and divorce, Jesus actually says that in the case of porneia, which is this idea of sexual sin or adultery, that um, it can so violate a marriage that it may need to result in divorce. But as a pastor, I've even seen in situations where that's taken place in marriages where people have forgiven each other and resurrection has taken over and they've been healed. But that's not always what happens. So Jesus even acknowledges that the covenant can be so damaged so as to only have the resurrection present to be able to restore it and renew it. And maybe not till Jesus himself comes back. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the, about the idea of being deserted as a reason for divorce. Jesus says, Moses gave you divorce because of hardness of heart. The idea of hardness of heart is actually like sclerosis, like the, the thickening of your heart, a stubborn refusal to yield to God and His ways. And so in that sense, the Bible's both realistic and idealistic. Jesus is pointing us to creation. He's saying, this is what we're made for. We're made to, to have marriage look like this, but we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world sometimes where what do we do when the covenant is broken? And what Jesus is presenting here is this idea that 
There are cases, but the real issue is this. What has God made you for? He's made you for covenant relationship. God does allow divorce for those situations. That's true. Um, But at the same time, God calls us to move into what he's designed us for, which is real relationship based on his promises. When two people get married, two believers get married, they stand before God and witnesses to promise to be loving and to be faithful, to be committed, to love one another and respect one another. Where can we find the power to do that kind of thing? Only in how God has treated us. You know, the incarnation, Jesus coming and dealing with the Pharisees, they're asking a question that is insincere for their own purposes. How does the God of creation respond to their arrogant question? He talks with them. He interacts with them. He calls them to consider the greater thing. What have you been made for? You know, the the reality of understanding that it's God's promises that make it possible for us to have a relationship with Him is the way in which we view our relationships with one another in the context of marriage. That it's the promise that's going to shape us. It's God's grace that's going to sustain us. That it's the understanding of what all He's done for us and what He means for us that's going to give us a vision that's even bigger than the pains and the difficulties and the frustrations we experience in this life. Now, if you're not married, and there are those of you in here who are not married, you know, whether you're not married yet because you're not old enough or maybe you, um, you know, you're, you just haven't found somebody yet or whatever it is, there's a calling here for us to understand that marriage is what God has designed for us and yet we're not incomplete without it. You're not only whole if you're married. You know, we're actually... Uh, meant to find our wholeness in who Jesus is and what God has made us for to have a relationship with Him as a first order of business. But in the context of marriage, God says this is what it means to be married, to love each other with all of who you are because that's how I've loved you, Uh, to welcome you into a relationship that is based on forgiveness and kindness and, and favor and not on performance or failure. It's meant to be a permanent relationship, and he models that for us by making a permanent commitment to us with a covenant. You know, there will will be times in marriage where if, if your commitment is really not based on, in your marriage, if it's not based on God's faithfulness to you, you're gonna base it on something else. And what is the something else you're gonna base it on? It's not going to be sufficient. God calls us to say, I'm going to first understand your affections for me, and I'm going to use that as my paradigm for how to figure out even something as important and significant and difficult at times as marriage can be. Marriage is meant to be permanent. But the problem is, is that there are problems in marriage. What are the problems in marriage? Uh, the problem is you're in it. You know, everybody uh, is weak. Every marriage has struggles. There's flaws in every marriage. Every single person who enters into a relationship with another person is entering into a relationship with someone else who is also a sinner. If you were to try to define what marriage is supposed to look like, how would you define it? There was an article in USA Today. It was called this. This was the title of the article. Infidelity Today has a new face. Modern world blurs rules about what's acceptable. And so the whole article is talking about, well, what is acceptable in the context of marriage? Like, like well, you know, what kind of expectations should you have? And in the same, in the same um, uh, article, it had an advertisement in the middle of it that said this. It was an advertisement for a movie that said, she's the perfect mother and he's the perfect temptation. Like even in our culture, we're trying to figure out what should we base marriage on? What should we base relationships on? Movies and TV seem to glamorize um, relationships that are outside marriage. Like, how, how, 
how then do we understand our relationships? Why are they so difficult at times? Paul Tripp, Jamie and I went to a conference where Paul was speaking at Christ the King. And there's probably three or 400 people sitting out there. And he looks out over all of them. And he says, I don't know all of you very well, but I can tell you this. If you're married, I'm 99% convinced that your biggest problem in your marriage is that you are in it. It's you. And for the 1% of you where that's not the case, you need to gather the church and other people around you to help support you to figure that out. But for 99% of you, the biggest problem in your marriage is you. So what's the problem in our marriage? When we first get married, we have certain expectations, and then we're married for a while, and then what happens? We discover there's expectations we didn't even, we didn't even know we had, and that this person can't fulfill all those expectations. What do we do with that frustration? How do we begin to process it? Um, you know, wh- where do we go to begin to satisfy our heart? One psychologist said this. He said, people today pursue what is called um, ultra-happiness. They expect love to always be romantic and thrilling. People misunderstand happiness now more than ever. We used to think happiness was a kind of contentment and life satisfaction, and now we've come to define it as a really high arousal kind of excitement. In other words, many of us get to a point where we say marriage is just too hard and it shouldn't be this hard. We're not compatible. What's the problem with marriage? What's the real issue with marriage? As a pastor, um, I've, I've met with lots of people and talked about their marriages with them. I would never share those things with you. But I will say, for those marriages that I've worked with where the marriage hasn't worked out and they've had to go um, and they've, they've gotten married again, what they've found is that the exact same kind of unhappiness they had in the first marriage, they discover in the second. That actually marriage might not be the problem. What is then the problem? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 5. It was because of your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus is saying this is a heart issue. Figuring out how to do marriage well, how to do life well, how to navigate these things, it comes back to the heart issue. Paul in Romans 3 says this, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's the real problem in marriage? No one's righteous. All have fallen short. You know, the the first thing to think about in your marriage, if you want your marriage to really sing, is to consider, where is my sin revealing itself? Where do I need to believe these words that Paul writes, that Christ Jesus um, actually provides atonement for me? That his grace provides redemption that comes in Jesus. That it all comes by faith. That God's demonstrating what he really wants for us by who Jesus is. That ought to be the first question we ask when we begin to think, think about the problem of marriage. Paul tells us here that redemption comes by grace and through Jesus. What if you approached problems in your relationships with other people or in your marriage and you started with this? You ready? So we have an issue. Number one, I've got issues. I'm a sinner I'm in need of God's grace. Secondly, Jesus loves you very much, and he loves me very much. 
And third, God wants us to move towards peace. What if that's how you sort of prefaced the big arguments in your life or in your marriage? If the goal was actually move towards peace based on Jesus' grace because we're sinners who are in need of it. Do you see how different that is? You know, the problem with marriage is that both people are weak. Both people are struggling. Both people have uh, issues of their own that make them blind. And God is inviting us to base our affections for each other not on what we see, but on who He is and what He has revealed. You know, the Pharisees are asking Jesus this question not to discover a thriving marriage. They're asking the question because they just want to get Him undermined. They want to take away His authority. And so if marriage is meant to be permanent and the problem is that big, then where do we find power in our marriage? Mark 10, verses 7 to 8, Jesus says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is he's giving us this picture of marriage that we're meant to enter into if we're going to work through the problems, if we're going to face the realities of what we're dealing with as far as difficulties in our marriage. It starts with us experiencing Unity, unity in who Jesus is that we might know how to love one another. Now, Jamie and I have been married about 23 years. We married 23 years this August. And our first year of marriage, Jamie will tell you, to say I was a novice husband is like the understatement of the year. We were married in August. Her birthday was September 27th. I didn't do that well. Like, that was a one-month gap, you know, a big opportunity to get things straight. The first year, we, you know, I, I took for granted things like her making food almost every night for us. I sort of took for granted the fact that, you know, in my mind, we only need two towels. We had plenty of towels. They were always clean. And she would coach me on very basic things that I don't want to really tell you about to sort of enable me to be the kind of husband that I really, I guess I've become in some ways, but that she's still working on. Why would you do that in the context of your marriage? Because you're one. Because God's at work in you. You know, pastors told me, love, figure out how to love your wife well. There's power. If you can trust in God's love for you, there's even power in your marriage to make you stronger as a person. I was like, oh, yeah, I totally get it, whatever. And then here I am, 23 years into it, still trying to figure out how do I love well? What does it mean for me to, to sort of live into this oneness and this unity? I think part of what it means of what I've been learning is that as a husband, I could ask myself the question, and I think you're, as a wife, you can do this too. But what's really my role in the life of my spouse? Like, what is, why am I in this marriage? What's God's primary goal for me in this marriage? You know what I don't think it is? I don't think it's that my wife is supposed to be the key to me experiencing contentment finally. That my wife is actually not supposed to be the thing that God uses to satisfy all of my needs and desires. That actually, in my marriage, the goal of me being married is to figure out how to encourage her in her walk with Jesus, to figure out how to support her as she seeks to follow his ways and fulfill the calling that he has given to her, and for her to do the same for me. And in that context, that's where you experience real oneness in a marriage, a real power. Tim and Kathy Keller, who have a book called The Meaning of Marriage, wrote this. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all of your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Do you hear that? To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. 
To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved like God loves you. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Imagine if we began to live into this in the context of our marriages, saying to ourselves, how am I going to love my spouse in a way that reminds them about how much God loves them? Now, I know this is tough to do. I've been trying for over two decades. I get it. But this is the way that leads to life. It's what God does with us. God loves us like this. God loves us with a perfect kind of love that makes us alive. And he calls us to imitate that towards our spouse. One friend um, I was talking to about marriage said this. He said, marriage is kind of like a garden or a flower bed. You know, you have to pull out the weeds. You got you to work the soil. You got to water it. I just want to ask you, what are the, if you had to de- describe the kind of ways you're working the soil in your marriage, you're planting seeds in your marriage, you're pulling out weeds in your marriage, like what does that really look like? Do you actually intentionally consider the realities of trying to tend the garden of your marriage? God is calling us to do that. Because we're one. Marriage is kind of like a garden in the sense that it's something that if we don't care for, it also can get very much out of control. Now, let me read you this, one, this other quote from Tim and, Kathy, or Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, Meaning of Marriage. He says this, In any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do, the act, you do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, or eager to please, but in your actions you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings, and that is what can happen if you decide to love. Now, for those of you who've been married a long time, I am sure you have tried many, many, many different strategies to to work on your relationship with your husband or your wife. Jesus is actually calling us to imitate the resurrection towards each other like this. In moments where we don't feel like loving, we remember that God loves us, and that's our motivation for loving. In moments where we're wondering if forgiveness is really going to impact our spouse, we remember how God's forgiveness has impacted us. In the book of Genesis, as the Bible begins, it starts with a wedding. It's meant to give us imagery about God's relationship with us, but our relationship with one another. And the Bible actually ends with a picture of a wedding. In Revelation chapter 9, we read this, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. As the church, we are the bride of Christ. We are the ones that God looked, that Jesus looks down on for this wedding feast and says we're in fine linen, bright and clean. When Jesus is up on the cross, and that's where Mark is really marching us toward, and even in this discussion here, we're heading towards the cross. When Jesus is on the cross and he looks down, you know what he sees or what he doesn't see actually? He doesn't say, all of you have met all of my expectations. You just make me so happy. You haven't made any mistakes You've done everything well. When Jesus looks down from the cross, what does he see? He sees people who say they love him, but what they're actually doing is denying him, betraying him, ignoring him. 
They are filled with indifference toward him. And how does he respond to that in that exact moment? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His love, his commitment, his covenant faithfulness is so powerful that not even the weakness of the bride can prevent him from loving her well. And what is the result of him loving like that? Resurrection. What's the result of not loving like that? Not resurrection. Or as Jesus says here even, not entering the kingdom of God. You know, if we really want to see in our relationships, if we want to see what God has for them, we need to consider how Jesus loves us so we can think about how to love one another. Now, let me talk about these last few verses, verses 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, it's interesting here because we don't really see Jesus get indignant very often. But when you think of indignant, what, what do you think of? You know, I was watching Walker play baseball, and one of the, other, one of the players on the other team was up to bat, and, and the pitcher threw a pitch, and I thought it was a great pitch, but this kiddo thought that the umpire completely missed it. And so he communicated his feelings towards the umpire really clearly for all of us to see. And then he walked off, and he took his bat, and he lifted it up, and he slammed it into the ground, and then he went to the dugout, and then his coach and him had a few words. When I think of indignant, like, that kiddo was indignant. And I don't think that's the kind of, that's not the image of Jesus in that moment, but this feeling of absolute passion in opposition to what's being done is really clear in that moment, right? Jesus sees his disciples preventing these children from coming to him, and he rebukes them. He is indignant toward them. He says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The disciples, in essence, were preventing the weakest among them to come and be with Jesus, and Jesus is indignant about it. So they stop because it seems, it seems like they immediately obeyed him because all of a sudden he takes the children in his arms, he places his hands on them, and he blesses them. Now, what is it that is so special about this understanding of a relationship that a child has with who Jesus is in this moment that Jesus is asking us to imitate and live into? Well, think about a child for a moment. Think about the young ones, because as they get older, they're way more comfortable with challenging things, which is fine. But when they're two and three, they pretty much assume that mom and dad know what's best, mostly. They know that they're the ones who are going to put us in bed. They know they're the ones who are going to give us food. They're going to buy us clothes. They're going to provide for us. If they say we're going to Chick-fil-A, we're headed to Chick-fil-A. Like what mom and dad say, that's what ends up happening. That's my world. That's reality. They have faith that whatever their parents are going to do and whatever they're going to say, that's what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, if you really want to approach me, you need to approach me with that kind of faith, the kind of faith that says this, I can't answer every question, I can't comprehend all of your ways, but here's what I know, that your ways are good and that that's what we're doing. And Jesus is inviting his disciples and everyone around and says, if you really want to be a part of my kingdom, anyone who will receive the kingdom of God must do it like a child or they will never enter it. You know, I think for us, part of what that means is that there are times we don't quite understand things like why our building was flooded or why it's taking so long or maybe much bigger things like why am I ill 
Or why are things happening in the world like they're happening? Like we don't, God doesn't actually answer every single question our hearts can muster. He answers all the questions he knows our hearts need to hear in the scriptures. But he doesn't answer every question we, we can muster. So what does he expect us to do? He expects us to pro- approach him with the knowledge that his ways are good. That his ways are best. That he's actually leading us to where we need to be, that this kingdom he's inviting us to enter with a childlike faith is a kingdom that if we will enter into it, we will experience grace and restoration. Or if you go back and read that Romans 3 passage, we'll experience real redemption. God offers that redemption to us because he considers us, Jesus considers us, his bride. You know, this evening, um, as you think about your relationship with Jesus, Ask yourself that question. Do you really believe that when God sees you, he sees you as acceptable? That he sees you as his bride? That he sees you as the object of his affection? That he doesn't expect you to be able to answer every question, but he expects you to approach him with a childlike faith? If so, you are entering the kingdom of God. And even as we celebrate the supper, it's a chance for us to express that faith, to ask God to enable us to be able to approach him with a childlike faith so that we too might enter in and experience his promises afresh. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we hear these words from the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, and we are reminded that your intentions for us are permanent, that you make a covenant promise to us that will never be broken, that you offer us even power for our relationships and our marriages through the resurrection, that as we put our hope in the gospel, you actually bring renewal to us. And so, Lord, tonight, as we reflect on your words, as we take in and think about um, your promises to us, would you take all of these reflections and use them for the purpose of shaping us that we might trust you and approach you with a childlike faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.